welcome to Butterflies and Bravery. I am your host, Whisper James, and my co-host is the lovely Jemima Ferris. We have a very exciting guest on our podcast today, the renowned Dr. Ganyal Lalich. But before we get into that, we want to tell you a little bit about someone that we just actually finished interviewing the other day, and her name is Lisa Kendall. She's the founder of uh, Counter Cult Coalition. Their mission is to raise awareness of the issues related to people that are involved or especially born into cults and coercive groups and high demand organizations, especially around the legislative side. Yes, exactly. Improving public policy mm-hmm. to protect and provide for children harmed by group involvement. Yeah. So they are having their first fundraiser. It is in Portland. It's a cocktail party at Costello's Travel Cafe at 2222 Northeast Broadway Street on April 8th from 6 to 9 p.m. They'll have wine, beer, and small plates, silent auctions, some cult trivia. Ooh, we could rock that. (laughs) (laughs) We really could. (laughs) Splendor game table with prizes and all of that, so... Their goal is to make the world a safer place for children impacted by coercive groups known as cults and to smooth the way for more meaningful opportunities. Yeah. And so that's exciting. It's the first yes. person that I've really heard that's sort of coming at it from a legislative side. Yes. And so it's very interesting. So yeah, definitely tune in to our next podcast where we're, you'll learn more about her mission and what she's doing. But because of the timing, we wanted to just give a little shout out about the fundraiser that she's doing so yes and then in the show notes we'll add where you can donate to their cause in case you can't go to the event you can have the opportunity to donate to help them with their mission yes definitely before we dive into this interview in case there's anyone that that hasn't heard of dr yanya lalit she is actually one of the most sought after cult experts in the world. She has authored and co-authored multiple critically acclaimed books on cults. She has done 30 plus, what did she say? 30 plus years of research. She has a PhD and she does a lot of work with education and speaking. She is on almost every single documentary that's about cults. You're going to see an interview with Dr. Lalich. So the fact that we have her here with us today is just absolutely amazing. We're super excited. I've been listening to a lot of the podcasts that you have done previously because we didn't want to just repeat what everybody else was saying. If you do want to introduce yourself and maybe tell us how you got into the field that you're in. And then I know that you were in the political cult I can't remember the name of it. That's but, right. I wish I but, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel it on that one. <laughs> if you just want to give us a little bit of background about you, and then we'll go into our questions. <laughs> okay, sounds good. My name is Yanya Lalich, and I'm a retired sociology professor. Uh, when I was 30 years old, I joined a, I guess you would call it a left-wing revolutionary group. 
I had just moved back to the United States after living on a Spanish island for about four and a half years. And God knows why I left that. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so I was new in town and I was coming out as a lesbian. So there were a lot of personal vulnerabilities at the time. And I met a friend of a friend who invited me to a study group. And this was the mid 70s. And study groups were really popular in urban areas for leftists and progressives who, after the Vietnam War ended, were trying to figure out what do we do next. Yeah. Uh, So I joined the study group because it seemed like I'd meet new people and I was interested in that kind of thing. So obviously I didn't know the study group was a front for cult and was the way they were recruiting. So after a few weeks, a long story short, I got asked to be in the background organization, which I was very excited about. And I had to fill out a huge questionnaire so they knew everything about me at that point. And I really thought I had found something. I was 30 years old. I wanted to do something meaningful in my life. These seemed like really serious people. And of course, lo and behold, it was really all about the leader who was an alcoholic, megalomaniac, very erratic. So familiar. (laughs) Yeah, woman. And so we worked our asses off. I was very quickly brought into leadership. So I taught a lot of the courses for new members and I was in charge of recruitment. I was in the inner circle and It was a very rough existence. We worked 20-hour days, seven days a week, year after year. And again, it's too long to go into the whole story, but eventually we had our revolution and we overthrew our leader. (laughs) Ten and a half years later, I got out and we all got out. So I went to New York to get away from San Francisco. Luckily, I found a really terrific therapist who really saved my life. I had so much guilt and shame about the things I had done as someone in leadership. After It took a long time, but after 10 years, I finally decided to go to graduate school and got my PhD. Even before then, I was attending cult awareness conferences and making presentations and talking about political cults because everything then was all about religious cults. So this was now the mid 80s. And I met a woman who was a therapist and we wrote Take Back Your Life, which has been selling consistently since 1994. And I'm in the process of updating it again. I've written six books. Uh, While I was a professor, I was as active around cult stuff as I could be, but I also had a big teaching load. And then I retired in 2019. And since then, I've been busier than ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not too long ago. No, the pandemic helped that because everybody fell down those rabbit holes and I got a lot of calls and people emailing me. And then I met my two colleagues, Beth and Sally, who had been sent to those awful boarding schools when they were younger. So they also had cult backgrounds and we started Take Back Your Life Recovery and are offering courses and doing a course to train therapists, which was one of my life's goals to get more therapists to know how to work with clients coming out of cults. Because I heard so many horror stories and had a few myself. Yes. Um, So uh, that's how I got here. Wow. That's amazing. You're absolutely right about the, the therapist. Yeah. It's really hard to find someone because like cult kids are just they're just not the same especially if you've grown grew up in a cult i feel like you can't take your average psychological problems and solutions and apply them to us because we don't have the average psyche 
That's right. Exactly. But I have that book, Escaping Utopia, Growing Up in a Cult, Getting Out and Starting Over. And I interviewed like 68 or 69 people who grew up in cults and who left on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to look at how did people, uh, quote, adjust to mainstream society and Just the stories I heard were so heartbreaking. It was just, I'd have to be the like researcher being very objective and quiet during these interviews. And then I'd get off the phone and I would just plop on my bed and cry and cry. You guys know, especially the sexual abuse of the children and the physical abuse. And so I was just so honored to be able to talk to all those people and write that book. And it's really one of my pet peeves right now that we don't have resources for yeah. kids coming out of cults. And there's so many suicides and so many yeah. people ending up on the streets. And it's really a it's really a public health issue. And it's just something yeah. we don't even acknowledge in our society. And that's why we're doing a course specifically for people who were born in a cult, because it is different. The recovery process is very different. That's the one I'm taking, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm cool. Looking forward, looking I'm forward so excited. <laughs> so excited. Yeah. I can't wait. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that course? Because a lot of our listeners are ex-cult members and they might be interested if you still have space. I know you said you'd like to attend to keep it down to a small group. Yeah, we try to keep it to 20, sometimes 25, which isn't small, but there's so much demand that we feel like we can't turn people away and we can only offer so many at a time. We just finished a round, so they're always on Saturdays and Wednesdays, and all of us have lives. Sally and Beth are moms. Sally's a single mom. So anyway, the class for those who were born or raised in is five sessions. The cost is $250, but we do have scholarships. And we almost always have people on scholarships in every course, and we never turn anyone away. So if people go to our website, which is tbylr.com, take back your life, tbylr.com, all the courses are there, and you can register right there. And what we do is initially, if it's not someone we know, we'll have a brief phone call with the person or a Zoom call like I did with you, even though I knew who you were. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But we do that call just to find out a little bit more about the person and make sure they're ready for the group and also to make sure they're not a secret Scientologist or something. (laughs) We know how important it is to create a safe environment. Yes. Um, And then after that phone call, the person gets put on the spreadsheet and will eventually receive a welcome letter that informs them more about the group and how to pay. Before each session, we send out the link for the Zoom call, and then we also send handouts, like little things to read before the class, as well as the course outlined for that day, so people know what's coming. And sometimes we send homework, uh, which is optional. We don't coerce anybody into doing the homework. (laughs) But the people who do it have found it really helpful. And then on every other Tuesday, we have a discussion group for people who've been in our courses. So again, it's a very safe environment. One of us is always there to moderate because sometimes, I'm sure you've experienced this, when former cult members get together, they can trigger each other and explode a little bit. So We're always there just to make sure to keep the peace. That has never happened, but Mm. I think that's important to have one of us there. Although we don't lead it in any way, we basically leave it up to whoever's there, what they want to talk about. And we might jump in now and then, but we don't 
control it at all. So that's pretty exciting. And yeah, so that's what we do. And that course, the course for people born in starts, let me look at the calendar, July 9th, and it's on five Saturdays in a row. That's super exciting. And then I'm sure we'll do it again in the fall sometime later in the fall. Yeah, we've, we feel so blessed. I, I hate that word, but we feel so <laughs> to be able to do these courses and really help people on their path of recovery. Yes, it's so yeah. important. And even though I've been out for 22 years now, mm-hmm. I still feel like I, I, I feel like I'll benefit from yes, it. Absolutely. And oh, yeah, it's because there's things that you just don't realize until right. somebody comes along and is like, hey, look at this. Like, oh, yeah, for sure. For exactly. sure. No, we have a lot of people who have been out for numbers of years. And on what, what we call them psychoeducational. So it's not like a support group. Each session, one or two of us will present a topic and then we always leave time for questions and answers. But it's really to give people the terminology and the framework to understand what happened to them. Because Mm -hmm. I know for myself, when I got out, it was such a mush. It was like, Mm -hmm. how did I become that person? And for kids who didn't know anything else, it's doubly troubling. So by providing the the framework and the language, I think that's what's been really helpful for people. And having the opportunity to ask questions and hear from each other a little bit, which really helps. So people are always surprised that all these groups are the same in many ways and just call it something different. So yep. um, yes. Yeah. Very much so. We interviewed a lady from another cult and Almost everything she was saying could have literally come out of my mouth too. Yeah, it was yeah. like it was almost shocking. Yeah. How many things were just so much the same? It's yeah, it's it's almost unbelievable. It's funny that so many people fall into this. Yeah. And that's why in, in Take Back Your Life, we have this chapter about cult leaders. And we say, it looks like they all went to the cookie cutter messiah school. We literally said that on that episode too. We were like, they, there's like, must be some course somewhere that they're right. taking. <laughs> well, yeah. narcissists and con artists, and especially malignant narcissists, which is what most cult leaders are. It just comes to them naturally. That's just who they are. And that's what's often difficult to understand. Like, we can't imagine people are really like that because we're not like that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. For sure. It does. And then, and yes, and that, you talked about bounded choice. Mm Mm-hmm. In your, do you, will you explain a little bit more about that? Because from my understanding, no, never mind. Just tell us what it is. <laughs> so, bounded choice is the theory and framework that I came up with in doing my dissertation. And there's a book called Bounded Choice, if people are interested, that's available on Amazon, which is a user friendly explanation of my dissertation. But okay. so, my dissertation was a comparative study of the group I was in, which was called the Democratic Workers' Party, hardly Democratic, and the Heaven's Gate cult. And people may remember or know that was the group that committed yeah, mass suicide, if you want to call it that, um, in the mid-90s. And I was in the middle of my grad school at that time, and, and I knew people who had been in that cult a long time. I was working with families. So my advisor said, this is what you're going to do your dissertation on, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he said, instead of just doing one case study, it's much more effective if you do a 
comparative study. So why don't you do your old group? And I'm like, oh, crap, I don't really want to go back there. <laughs> but anyway, he convinced me. So I did this study of analyzing all the documents from both groups and interviewing whoever I could from my group and people who've been in or around Heaven's Gate. I looked at videos. I did analyze the goodbye videos, which were those ones that were on TV right after mm-hmm. sides. And at that point, I really knew things were the same. But it was really surprising to see how you could have this very down-to-earth revolutionary group who wants to save the working class and change the world and make the world a better place. And then you have this kind of new agey sort of UFO group that thinks this world is disgusting, thinks they aren't even of this world. And all they want to do is get the hell out of here, get away from earth. Uh, Mm -hmm. So so you'd think, how could they be the same? And yet, of course, as we were just saying, across techniques, across language, across control mechanisms, everything, these same things, just called something different. And at the back of the book, there's some wonderful charts where I take the terminology and I say how Heaven's Gate did it, how our group did it. And those have been really helpful for people in their recovery because then they can make a column for their group and Mm -hmm. show how their group did it. So anyway, out of that study, I came up with this structure that all cults have, which is made up of these four components of the charismatic or authoritarian leader, the all or nothing belief system that incorporates an an indoctrination program that you have to change yourself. And then what I call systems of influence and systems of control. The systems of influence are, of course, the more overt rules and regulations. You have to wear this, you have to marry this person, you have to have so many babies, or you don't have babies, or whatever those obvious rules are. And then the systems of influence are the more subtle social, psychological uh, techniques that play on your emotions, play on guilt and fear and shame and all of that stuff that we normally respond to all through Mm -hmm. our lives. So at first it doesn't seem out of the ordinary. It's, oh yeah, I'm ashamed of this. Or, oh yeah, I love my leader. Mm -hmm. So these things together create, all of these things are interlocked, these four things. And it creates what I call the self-sealing system, which is a system that's closed in on itself. Mm -hmm. There's no access to outside information or outside information is banned. And literally Mm -hmm. some groups, you can't watch TV or listen to, you know, whatever. Everything is directed in one way from the leader or from the ideology. So within that self-sealing system, you're constantly going through this indoctrination. It's just happening all the time, right? Mm. From your peers, from the classes or things you have to go to or the assignments you have, whatever it might be. So that you eventually essentially internalize the belief system. You internalize the will of the leader, right? Once you've done that, once you've gotten to that point, and not everybody gets to that point, but most people do. Once you get to that point, that's when you're in this state of mind that I call bounded choice. Okay. And, and, and at that point, you cannot imagine life outside the group, right? Life outside the group is equal to death, either yeah. either in reality or metaphorical, right? You've been given all these horror stories of what's going to happen to you if you leave, or you're going to lose, yep. leave your, lose your path to salvation, whatever. So once you're in that 
bounded choice state. Yes, you have decisions you can make. Usually they're very non-consequential, little bitty decisions. Yeah, sure, you can make those decisions. But anything significant, any decision you have to make that's significant, you are actually confined by the will of the group and the will of the leader so that your free will is altered. The choice you make is always for the group and for the leader. So it's yeah. it's essentially an illusion of choice. Um, right. So if you remember from the Heaven's Gate tapes, if any of you saw them and they're saying, yeah. about, they're like, I'm doing this of my own free will, I'm doing this. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. I'm sorry. And that's what I think having that understanding has been so helpful to people because it really gets you to see the enormity of the system that you were closed up in and why you did the things you did or why your mother did the things she did or why yeah. Your, yeah. your peers did the things they did. It helps relieve some of the guilt and shame because you see that there, there's nothing else you could have done. It was an impossible situation. Yeah. For us that were like actually born into our cult, like, right. like we are born into bonded choice. Exactly. Absolutely. And you're not going through the normal developmental processes that someone in the quote outside world is going through. All of the skills that you may have learned as a regular kid in society of like how to get through a fist fight or how to cope with some strange questions or how to make friends or any of those things. You didn't have the opportunity to do those on your own. Everything was done for you in a sense. So, yeah. so Jemima, is that how you understood bounded choice? Yes, yes, actually okay. it is. It was, pretty, it was pretty much, it was much, much more simple than that. But <laughs> <laughs> I really liked your whole uh, explanation around it. And it makes a lot of sense because it, you mentioned the choices that our mothers made. And I think mm -hmm. that's a big sort of, Whisper, you had a question around that, didn't you, about the first generation? And Yeah, because that's something that we face a lot in our own community. Because there's a, there's a fair amount of us that were born into the children. So we're a pretty big community. And one of the... Second uh, and third. And third generation. And third now, yes. yes. Some of the biggest conflicts that we have within our community is around what how to deal with the first generation. <laughs> And there's absolutely some of us who are like anyone who was there was a perpetrator and an, an allower and the whole thing. And then there's other people who are like, my mom and dad aren't bad. And therefore, I don't want to hear your story of how they were bad. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's people that are like, yeah, we should all just we're all on the same boat together. We should all reach healing ourselves, you know, like together. But, but for me, that's where I feel is a little bit different in the sense that I think we're different types of victims. And what happens is when this is my view, or I should say, like my experience, what I've seen is that the first generation and the second generation are in these places. They're trying to get validation from each other of what they went through. And, and so you get this idea of, yeah, so what you went through that, how about poor me? And that's the communication. <laughs> However you want to stay in touch with them is one thing, but as far as like a healing journey, they need to be separate, I think, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's two totally different types of healing. Yeah. And I, I think the parents, the parents, yes, of course, they were also indoctrinated, but then they also, 
which is true for pretty much everyone, became perpetrators to varying degrees. I had to go through a lot of that just because I was in high leadership. I was in the inner circle. I knew shit. I saw stuff happen. I knew the erratic decision-making of the leader and and yet carried out what I was told to do because Mm -hmm. at first I believed in it and probably later I was just too scared not to uh, until I finally just removed myself from leadership. But for parents, I think not to come to their own understanding of, yes, they too were victimized, but they also were victimizers and they need to address that in a in an honest way in order for the kids to really find forgiveness. And forgiveness is really the sticky wicket. It's why we have a course called Forgiveness of Self, because yeah, yeah. in our society, everything's about, oh, let's just forgive everybody of everything, all this like new age woo-woo stuff, and we're all going to just close that door. But there's some people you don't ever have to forgive if they're not worthy of your forgiveness. The most important thing is to forgive yourself. Yeah, Once you yeah. do that, I think you're able to then see things a lot clearer. So if parents aren't able to really analyze what their practices were, what their experiences, what were the things they did, whether it's because they were following the party line or not, there may be some parents who are just never going to come to that. And it always makes me crazy. Like when you see these trials of these like serial killers and the parents will get up there and say, I forgive you. God will take care of you in prison or I'm crying for you. Huh? If somebody killed my daughter, I wouldn't get up there and say, I forgive you. And that always strikes me as so weird. Like how do people, do they really believe that? So yeah, it's a very complicated situation. And I certainly don't envy any of you kids who have to figure that out with your parents or perhaps even your older siblings or whoever. Yeah. yeah. So I was listening to another podcast you did and you mentioned the teen training camps that yes. the children of God did and how terrible they were. <laughs> Cause we went to those yeah. teen training camps. I believe you were talking about it in regards to like indoctrination. Like that's how they got the second generation on board. Yeah. They with, had to rein you in with their whole plan. Okay. I guess I don't really have a question about that. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Tell me what you if you're up for it, tell me what that was like for you or how you saw it at the time and how you see it now. That's actually an interesting question. At the time I thought it was great. It was like we got we it was like a huge party all of our friends there type of thing like that was how my teenage brain saw it before they even did the teen training camps they did something called a yafum in mexico which was a youth area fellowship meeting that was in 1985 so only like the oldest only the oldest kids were there because it was like 10 and up or something when i was like 12 and because there was very few kids born into the children of God, like pre-1970, like by 1972, there was still like less than a hundred children in in the children of God. So they did a practice run first and that was not great. (laughs) (laughs) Talked about it before because that was when I had my first orgy when I was 12 And it was all these girls and a birthday boy. I don't even know who it was, but that was the kind of thing that was going on there. It wasn't, it wasn't 
yeah, it was, there was a lot of like naked dancing and they were already like prepping us into that at that age, young, very young. Then the actual teen training camps that they ran in like Mexico. I went to the one in Mexico. I know there was another one in Japan and I think there was one like down in Brazil too. I'm not sure. I know the Mexican one was the first one they did. And that was another, like, is this going to work? Here's the model. How's it going to go? I think they thought it went really good. (laughs) (laughs) I felt very indoctrinated. Which one did you go to? I went to the one in Thailand. Oh, okay. So that was for all of Southeast Asia, the one in Thailand. Yeah. They held them pretty much in every continent or area. Yes, exactly. And it wasn't in itself. It wasn't that terrible. It was just a basic structure, go to meetings and then have some kind of a dance or something. So for me at the time, it was like, this is fun and it's a big party and that. Now, obviously, I don't view it that way at all. I can see it for what it was because they did have us, even at the Yafim, dedicate ourselves to God. I remember going up there and being like, okay, yeah, I'm going to give myself to Jesus. I was 12. Like, what do you even understand at that point about what you're saying? And then, yeah, exactly. And then the other one I went to, I was 14. It was actually the day it started was my 14th birthday was the day that we all arrived there. So I significantly remember that (laughs) one of the only birthdays I remember because we never like did birthdays. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So now it's very obvious what it was indoctrination wise and all of that. But what was really terrible was what happened afterwards in Thailand. That's what I was going to say. Cause we actually, uh, the, the place where we, where I went to the, to the teen training camp was the same place where they put up, put together the school. Yeah. And my memory of the teen training was the, well, for the first time I felt like I was living in what do you call it? A, a snow globe <laughs> where you're being watched 24 seven. That was like one of the first experiences of it being that intense, but there was a lot of other first time things that were going on. Like you were saying, like the party, like the dances and the, some of the fun things. But then when we went into the, the schools, that's where, that's where a lot of the, tr- the horror was for me yeah. because it was live it was the teen training camp but 24 7 like for for like years yeah for a couple years wow and that was what was really traumatic in my memories yeah let's say yeah yeah and where and were your parents around in the same country at the time or no mine weren't hers were far away yeah they wouldn't let us they wouldn't let us see them yeah, we didn't. I didn't see my parents from twelve. I left when I was twelve, and I didn't see my mom again until I was twenty-seven years old. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they still involved? Your parents? No, no, no. But my mom was for a long time, like way long after I left. She was still involved with all of that. I think probably until Ricky. I think when Ricky did what he did, that was the big knife that killed the bees yeah at least it's a lot smaller now and they changed they say they changed a lot of their beliefs but i just can't believe that a bad tree can make good fruit it's just it it started bad karen zerby is obviously a terrible person for all the things that she did right and you can't just let that go and be like oh they're fine now it's, it doesn't work that way yeah. <laughs> like you were saying that, that's the problem when you have people who you have the founder or the leader of course and often they die or something happens but when you have 
also within the group, especially if you have in leadership people who are also narcissists or psychopaths or sadists or a a little bit off, and then they rise to power, that's bad. (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it, because if there aren't people like that in the group, then often if the leader dies or gets arrested or something, the, the thing might fall apart. But if you have people who then jump in and want to carry it on, like same with the Rajneesh group, there's now, there's still people running that and there's still thousands, thousands and thousands of followers. There's a, a, he's called Osho now. And it's one of the things that really makes me crazy because people post all these quotes by Osho on Facebook, like he's some wonderful man. And he was an absolute sexual predator and monster. And kids were horribly abused in that group as well, because these groups draw pedophiles to them. They can smell it. They know that's a place. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses. They know that's a safe environment for them. And so you have this private Osho group that has two and a half million followers, two and a half million. That's crazy. Yeah. And so that's another one that I think really needs to get busted open um, so that people don't think this was just this sweet little man. Uh, (laughs) And so actually someone I know there's a podcast coming out next week. That's going to blow that open on a little bit culty. So I'm very excited about that and very brave, courageous woman is oh, coming wow. forward with her story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, interesting enough, that connection is that that's the cult that my therapist was in. Oh, and, really? and, I w- and I was so shocked when I found out that's, that's why she understood so much what I was going through. Because right. I went through, I think, six other therapists trying to find someone. Right. And I met, found her and I was like, holy cow, how do you understand? And a f- couple of years later, I found out she had been in that. And she actually just wrote a book oh, that, yeah. that yeah, got picked up. Who is that? Um, uh, her name is her name is N- Nicola Ranson. Nicole. Nicola Ranson. Ranson. Yeah, R A Ranson. Oh, Ranson. Nicola. Yeah. Like her Nicola. name is Nicola. Okay. So she wasn't still in Rajneesh when you were seeing her as a therapist. No, she had gotten out. Yeah. And that's and yeah, and so she uh, wrote a memoir and it got picked up. So that's going to be another you know, yeah, expose. Yeah. But yeah, she said that the their, her groups right now, they're like blowing up on Facebook and stuff like this because the kids are coming out. The kids are coming out. Yeah. And and people are defend. They're still defending Rajneesh. They're saying, oh, that was just this pedophile and that pedophile yep. without seeing that's absolutely the culture he created. He's the source of all of that. So, yeah, that's. It's interesting how many years it takes to hopefully get people to see what these groups are really not like. And it's yeah. why I always say there are no gurus. These guys are charlatans from the get-go. I don't care right. what you say. And they just love taking advantage of people. Yeah, a lot so, of sense. Yeah. Children of God, Rajneesh, the, those were some of the really big ones in the 60s and 70s. And Rajneesh, that's still going on. It's yeah. just tragic. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, we also wanted to ask, you said another thing about no matter what age they are, when they leave, they have to go through the developmental stages. And I found that very interesting because that's basically, I didn't know that's what was happening when I left, but that's mm-hmm. how I felt. And I think Whisper felt the same way. Like basically when I left, I feel like I was like 18 years old. I don't know. I probably wasn't even that old, but <laughs> 
It was that's when you started to go out and see the world, except for that I wasn't 18, I was 27. But I really feel that's super important. And it's psychologically, you might not even notice that's what's going on, but that is what's going on. You're taking yourself through your own developmental stages that your parents should have taken you through, but now you're just taking yourself through them all. Right. And, yeah. and it's quite and a it's- racket. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it seems it, it may seem disturbing or upsetting or surprising. Like, why am I acting like this? I'm acting like a 16 year old. Right. Um, but it's important to just embrace that and go with it. The, uh, the author of, of all of that stuff, a psychologist named Eric Erickson, I would recommend people get his books. They're quite readable because he talks about very clearly these different developmental stages. Mm-hmm. And so by having an understanding, I think just like what we do in our courses, I think that's really helpful for people. Again, so it's not just like all this shit is coming at you, but you'll actually have an understanding of what's going on in the language for it. When I got out of my group, I was 41 and I felt like a 16 year old, but I joined when I was 30. So I had a life before. So I didn't have to go through the same thing that you guys did. I did have to get rid of the fear. Like I had fears of like just socializing and things like that. And I felt stupid. And I was in New York, which was like the cultural Mecca. And I had, I'd seen maybe two movies in 10 years. I'd go out on these business lunches and I'd feel really stupid. What the fuck am I supposed to talk about? But it's very different from someone who just has no clue. And also I could go back to friends, people who were friends before I joined the cult and say, what was I like then? Or get reminders of my high school years or my college years, or I had relatives that I could go to. And you guys, some people come out, they they don't have a clue if there's anyone on the outside they can go to that they're related yeah. to. I yeah. imagine people come out and don't even know what their real name is or have yeah. a birth certificate. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's people in your group like that. I was very confused about some of those things, but yeah, <laughs> I did have a birth certificate. I do understand that in some ways, I think our parents got stuck in the place they were developmentally. When mm-hmm. they joined. Like I, I know my mom joined when she was 17. Oh, like when, when I think about my 17 year old, like right. they, they wouldn't have had a clue at that time right. to really what life was. So even yeah. in that sense, they're very yes. developmentally hindered. But once you get out from that place, is it sort of inevitable that you're going to go through those developmental stages or do you have to be more aware or at least trying to grow or trying to experience things because because we do have some of our like some ex-members in our group that just jump straight into the whole this never happened like I'm like I'm I'm starting from here right now I'm going to pretend it never happened dive head first into some sort of whether it's their work whether it's their relationship and just no that's not That's never a good idea because it's at some point it's going to come back to bite. Look at Jemima. She's saying it was 20 (laughs) years ago and there's still stuff she feels she can understand. And she's been reading books and working on it and doing stuff. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. to to just ignore that it happened, I think, and I don't mean to sound sexist in the opposite direction, but I think that's why, for example, we have so many more women coming to our classes than men, because men aren't self-reflective in the same way women are. It's just how they're raised. And so I think right. a lot of men get out of these groups and they just try to carry on. And then it comes out in these really awful ways in their relationships or right. in their families or whatever. Yeah, I think w- joining a group when you're 17... The human brain isn't even fully formed until you're 25. 
So mm-hmm. anything that happens in those years, it has such a deep impact. It makes such a deep impression. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the documentary Seduced, which is about the Nexium cult in New York. And it's the story, it's a story mm-hmm. of Catherine Oxenberg, who was a TV actress, very famous, yes. trying to get her daughter India out of Nexium. And India joined when she was 19. And I'm in that documentary, and there's a place where I say exactly that. Like she was 19 when she joined, and that's your brain is still developing then. So all that shit that's coming into it from the cult or the cult leader is going to go so much deeper. So it's really important, I think, for people who were young. And even if your mom ended up, started young and became a parent, I'm sure she probably has a lot to go through if she hasn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's really, yeah, it's just part of life, that developmental stuff. And you can see people who get stuck and it often comes out in very often harmful ways of triggering. Right. They get triggered and then they snap back to cult behavior. Yeah. Um, and and that's um, problematic. And the other problem is people get becoming activists too soon. This is another one of my little bugaboos that I harp about because you have to be at least recovered to some point um, before you can become an activist. Otherwise, you're going to get triggered right, left, and center, especially if you're working with people from the same group, and then someone's going to remind you of your leader or whatever, or that's a child you had whatever with back in Thailand, and people don't know how to control themselves. And so many of these ex-member groups that start blow up. I've seen it over the years, one after the other, they just blow up because people become activists too soon. Um, Yeah. Or they end up going, they're focused on the wrong thing. Exactly. And so it's really important to get your feet on the ground and get your mind a little bit, at least, at least halfway, if not. (laughs) (laughs) Healing is a very long and and painful journey. And I think that's probably why a lot of people are afraid of it. But what, That brings me to something we were actually just talking just before that we wanted to talk to you about where Jemima had said you mentioned that cult kids don't have coping skills. Mm -hmm. And I was saying that's interesting because what I think that they do have in spades is masking skills. And that's sort of where the difference falls. I think sometimes where people mistake their masking for coping. And that's where the I guess the miscommunication comes from that people think that they're doing a lot better than they actually are because they're masking. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's great. I want to remember that. For the <laughs> Whisper, you're so smart. <laughs> no, that's great because it's a good I'm, point. Actually, we're the, I'm designing the course with two people who were born in cults because okay. I thought it's not right for me to just design this course. So I've got two two people who were born in two different groups to help design the course, but this is really great. Maybe we should get you in on that too. We, I was going to sign up with the, for the course myself too. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the coping skills. I mean, that, that masking versus coping, that's great. And the other issue that always comes up, people ask me about resilience. Like why do some kids leave and others don't, or why are some more resilient than others? And I'm, I swear to God, I did so much research on resilience and there is no answer to that. <laughs> I think it's something you either have it or you don't. I think it's something yeah. we're born with. And then because of some little bit of resilience, and then depending on our experiences that blossoms or 
hinders the development of your sense of resilience. And I think maybe the kind of challenging environment that that you all grew up in, actually, I think, adds to the resilience. You have to get through all that shit. And whether it gets you to eventually leave or not, I think it does build up this great store of bravery and courage and strength. Because who the hell should go through all that? I mean, God. Yeah. Yeah. Cog was one of the worst of all the cults, really. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That was pretty bad. (laughs) No, and I really honor you guys. And I I honor all the former members of that group. And it went on for so long, and it was so brutal. And across international lines, it was just. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm making you tear. <laughs> it's okay. It happens every podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like to cry. <laughs> it just happens. My eyes leak. <laughs> but also because, but also you know, there's that's one thing that for me that gets me too is that because you, there's not a lot of people that have had this experience, they don't understand it to the depth. So when someone who understands it that and says, I honor you, then you're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you really feel that. Yeah. That's- yeah. 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 I think it, I think not to belittle anyone who was sexually abused as a child or physically abused or both, but the extent to which that shit happened in, in your group was Sometimes I start reading these books. I don't know if Danielle Mess. I don't. Yeah, know we interviewed yeah, yeah, her. We, yeah, yeah, she's. And I started. I read her book because she asked me to give a quote for the cover, and I had the hardest time. Even though I, I've known about God for decades, I was going on TV when Ricky, when the Ricky thing happened. I, I really, I was really good friends with Miriam Boweri. Do you know her? She's just a star. I love her. Yeah. Um, and but reading that, well, the other one was not without my sister. That book yeah. blew my mind, and I just made everyone I know read that book. And I remember being on an airplane, and I was just sobbing. And the person next to me was like, "What's wrong? What's wrong? You've got to read this book." But when I read Danielle's, just it was just a couple months ago. I could barely turn the pages. It's just, yeah, it's heavy. <laughs> it's heavy, and the fact that. Zerby and King Peter or whatever the fuck his name is are carrying on. It's just tragic. Yeah. It is. And you guys have you guys really have such strength to help survivors and be there for each other. It took us a long time. (laughs) Like you said, we didn't become activists right away. We've both been out for 20 plus years now. And it took us, we just started this podcast last year, but we wanted to do something because we felt like we'd really worked hard on our healing. And we felt like we had a lot of maybe knowledge around a a good healing path, especially for ex-cog survivors, because... Mm -hmm. A lot of the feelings are the same that we have. Anybody with trauma, it doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter what you experience. The kind of path afterwards is very similar. And the feelings that you get are very similar. And then we all feel so alone. But then you say somebody else tells you their story and you're like, oh my God, I'm not so alone. A lot of people are feeling this way. Right. So are there other podcasts that focus on children of God? Not really. No. As far as this is the main this is the there's, main one. Yeah, there's episodes. Yeah, uh-huh. there's been episodes. Uh, yeah, we're we're the 
we're actually one of the few cult podcasts out there that are um, like from born in kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're one of the few. So (laughs) we have to publicize you a lot more. Yeah. That's that's what we're we're, we're getting close. Yes. Really ready for that. Yes, we're working on it and working on our website and trying to get some merchandise because we have some little, we have little art things that we did and, mm-hmm. you know, little quotes, like it's not the Survivor Olympics. That's one of our, mm-hmm, our yeah. big things because you know, I went for years, like, oh, my story is way worse than yours. I mean, yeah, I, exactly. I felt that way for a long time. And I, I was like, yeah. anybody can come to me and tell me their story and mine's going to be worse. And it's kind of, <laughs> I, it's a, a power thing almost a yeah. little bit wanting to be like, Oh, well, mine was worse than yours. It's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter right. who had it worse. Like he yeah. said, no, it should have never happened to anybody. And I, I always tell people like, don't compare yourself to other people, whether they're further along in their recovery or whether their story is worse than yours or whether you had a worse time than like, just do your own thing and support yes. each other, be there for each other. But don't compare yourself because everybody's journey is different. We're all individuals. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to do that. Yeah. Especially for people like us that have been out a long time and, and still aren't like financially stable. Like we're barely supporting ourselves, whatever yeah. our cases are. I think it has a lot to do with the way that we weren't trained to live in this world. We weren't exactly. given the yeah. tools that we need to know how to do anything. We had to learn it all ourselves. Exactly. And then for people like me, when I left, I did the whole, put it in the closet, nothing ever happened. I'm just going to carry on thing. And, but then I ended up doing a lot of drugs and drinking mm-hmm. a lot. And I was trying, yes. And I was trying to heal, but I didn't know because I just put it all in the closet. But right. then eventually I had just a terrible run of events where it's just was my friend died of cancer. I got fired from a job. I was in a car accident. My mom got cancer. My brother went to jail. My daughter got molested. I had to send my stepson to jail. Personally, I had to do that. So then my husband got disabled. It was just like, like all within six months too. And I just totally lost it. I, my power got shut off. My water got shut off. I got evicted. It was terrible. And this was only like in 2012, like it wasn't that long ago. Wow. And, and, and that's when I realized, okay, I got to heal from all of my past because I can't heal from any of this because I haven't dealt with that. That's right. And that's when I started going to therapy and learning that I actually do have to acknowledge. A lot of people don't want to acknowledge what happened to them. Yeah. They just want to pretend it's not there, but you, you just can't do that. And then the, there's the whole people too that have the, oh, I'm, I'm tired of hearing the survivor narrative and the victim narrative. And it's, what do you want me to do? That's my life. What right. am I supposed to? I, I can't lie. I'm not going to tell you something that's not true. I don't have the, any kind of glorious things to sugarcoat it with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a journey. That's for sure. Yeah. We'll get there. And it takes time. It does. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of time and a lot of processing mm-hmm. and a yeah. lot of dealing with things. And I, I think people need to really take it in stride as well. It's this roller coaster. And then there's going to be times when you want to deal with it. And then there's going to be times when I'm just not going to deal with this right now. And then maybe a month later, you 
pick up the journal again or start to sign up for a course or do something. You just have to go with your gut, which you weren't allowed to do when you were in the cult. Listen to yourself. So, yeah, it's definitely each person's journey is very individual. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. That's amazing. I can't wait to take your course. I'm (laughs) so excited about that. Thank you. I feel like I have so much more to learn still. Yeah, for sure. The more, the more you don't know. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. This has sure. been amazing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, thank, thank you, you know. for having me. This was really wonderful. And I wish yeah. you guys the best and to meet more of the folks from your group. So Invite me to any shindigs you're having. Okay, okay that'd be cool. awesome. Yeah, Thank you. yeah, yeah. yeah and we maybe have, you'll get we more. Have to keep our clothes on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, all right. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Ciao. The last few interviews we've had, the last few people that have come up, we're, we're delving into a world that's a little bit outside of like the survivor stories, which is how we started uh, or that initial kickoff for the podcast. So it is very interesting that the things are changing and developing. We're actually now starting to get contacted by some other cult focused podcasts as well. So we're going to probably have some crossover there. So yeah, it is very exciting and interesting. The what's coming about are the direction that we're going right now. So yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. It is interesting, too, though, that all of these professionals are themselves survivors also. They've all either been in a cult or they've been had abusive marriages, abusive situations. It's quite interesting, actually, to me that all of these professionals that we're having on our podcast are at the same time. Yeah, 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 exactly. And actually, you know what? You absolutely I absolutely will. (laughs) <laughs> correct my statement because it, 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 it well because you're right they they are all they all are survivors themselves and so they are in their own way it is their story as well because yeah. it's where they are today and what they've made of their experiences and yeah so that's you're right we actually are that actually still falls in our survivor story lane wow it's quite amazing actually because <laughs> i was thinking the same thing this is more on the professional side of things. But then I was like, wait a minute. No, these are all stories of survival and success. What yeah. more what more survival and success could you be than like somebody that's the renowned cult expert, basically internationally? Yeah. Yep. That's fantastic. Yeah, for sure. And we've been doing this for 40 plus episodes now. And I, and also in my personal, our personal life and, but especially since doing the this podcast is without fail every single survivor we've interviewed <laughs> Jesus what is with my tongue tonight <laughs> Oh my god <laughs> Every I'm sorry <laughs> interviewed I like interviewed Oh my god so I have a cold <laughs> Without, yeah, if you have a cold, I have a fucking a tongue broken that, tongue, a broke, very broken tongue. Get it, get, get it together, people. Your brain to tongue bridge is down. <laughs> it 
is a little bit. It is a There's little bit. There's construction on my brain to tongue bridge right now. <laughs> tra- traffic is being detoured. Traffic, traffic pattern changing ahead. <laughs> but no, I was. What interviewed it? Yeah. So but all of the survivors. My my point was that all the survivors we have interviewed, at, without fail, their part of their story is taking what happened to them and turning around and doing something for others. Yes. Like everything in whatever way it might be, whether it's like I'm going to break the generational cycle of abuse, like Mike, and or you're going to go like. Dr. Yanya Lalich that we just listened to. But each person in their own way is saying, I'm going to take what this pain was and I'm turning it into something that I I can do for others. And I think that's super, super beautiful. It is. That's super it beautiful. Is. So as we always say, stay brave. And remember <laughs> that every butterfly was once a caterpillar. <laughs>